I got these uh, emails from the Kennedy Center for some reason, I guess from when I lived in D.C. briefly like 10 years ago. But I, I got the email for the upcoming national opera season, and I immediately thought of you, Walter, and felt sorry for you. Another glorious season of yeah, death and romance at the Met, and you're making do with family operas about talking unicorns and such. It's pretty pathetic. I don't know why they even bother to, call, to do anything at all. But, you know, the Met is getting worse, too. It's getting woke. Fewer productions and more woke productions. Okay. Well, there's an entire podcast episode that we're saving for the future. Your, your love of 19th century European opera is uh, very un-American, Walter, and I think we've reached our limit for how much of it we can cover, at least on, on this version of our U.S. news podcast, which I guess we can start now. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters, brought to you by Tablet and the Hudson Institute. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and help you enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern. With you in Los Angeles, I'm here, as always, with Walter Essamid, Tablet news writer, Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. Walter, where in the world are you calling in from today? I'm actually calling in from Dallas today in the middle of a apocalyptic thunderstorm. So hopefully the power doesn't go out while we're trying to talk. All right. Well, let's get started then with a round of news or phone news. out three stories in the news cycle. And Walter, you tell me what's real and what's BS, what listeners should actually pay attention to and what they can comfortably ignore. Are you ready? First story, China Evergrande Group, one of the world's largest property developers, faces more than a thousand lawsuits involving $50 billion and has yet to win enough support from creditors for its overseas debt restructuring plan. Meanwhile, the residential market is seeing a renewed slowdown and homeowners are starting to question whether property is still a reliable store of wealth in China. Now for the average American, I I can't actually think of a less tantalizing story than Chinese real estate, but there does seem to be a new headline about it every day. So is this news or or phone news? It's actually news, though it's kind of hard to tell what it means. Um, if anybody, if any of the readers have been to China, our listeners have been to China, they know that uh, you'll often enter a Chinese city through a belt of empty 18-story apartment buildings that uh, the Chinese uh, Chinese investors have long thought, well, that was the best way to park your money. Clearly, the cities in China were growing. Sooner or later, people would want to live there. You could sell them for more, give them to your kids, whatever. It was a good way to, to, to watch your investments grow in value. But unfortunately, um, uh, the population is stabilized uh, growth and going down. Growth in the cities is not what it was. And the apartment uh, industry has way, way overbuilt. It's a, it's a bubble bigger, maybe the biggest bubble in the history of the world in some ways. And it looks as if Chinese investors are starting to figure that out and start to worry. Now, I don't think it means that the thing is going to come crashing down tomorrow because the Chinese government really doesn't want to have 
you know, tens of millions of angry, professional, middle-class Chinese citizens uh, furious with the government for their financial plight. So there are going to be a lot of efforts to keep this market on life support. But it does look as if slowly uh, the treatments are having less effect and it's getting harder and harder to disguise the underlying problems. So there's no, there's no ticking clock, visible ticking clock, no deadline date, but it's not a good moment for anybody. All right. Story number two. JP Morgan recently reached a $300 million settlement regarding victims of Jeffrey Epstein. The Daily Beast also discovered a whole new cast of Star Wars cantina type characters who dined with Epstein in 2014, all again, uh, wealthy, influential, well-known figures in the United States. So maybe not these particular recent developments in the Epstein saga, which continues to unfold, but the whole category of Jeffrey Epstein news, which has ensnared a number of uh, very elite, wealthy, high-status men in America. Is, Is this all news or faux news? Society declares war on all traditional, uh, Uh, social norms and ethics. A generation is encouraged from its earliest youth in a hyper-consumer culture to say, if it feels good, do it. Uh, Sexual license is celebrated everywhere. Uh, Wealthy men marrying trophy wives, uh, regardless of what happens to their first wife and their mother, the mother of their children, they're still considered wonderful. Hollywood, an entire industry built on selling sex and, uh, and, and celebrating desire. And amazingly, somehow in this society, a significant number of people start behaving badly. I mean, it's just shocking. I, for one, you know, am, am bowled over at this. I, I don't know how it could have possibly happened. Uh, you mix human nature, opportunity, and an entire culture dedicated to making lust a bigger and bigger part of all of our lives, and then raise your hands in holy horror when there's an actual consequence. Okay, well, third and final story also related to the culture. The U.S. Surgeon General recently issued an advisory warning of what he called the profound risk of harm to adolescent mental health from social media use. This comes in the wake of studies showing skyrocketing rates of depression and suicide attempts among American teens, but the specific connection to social media comes from studies claiming to demonstrate that the teen mental health crisis is a direct result of addiction to these smartphone apps. Now, Claire Kane Miller at the New York Times recently threw some cold water on those studies, reporting that there's actually very little evidence proving that social media use is harmful. But let's call it the dangers of social media for young Americans, a familiar headline by now. Is it news or faux news? Well, I certainly think the psychological studies prove part of it is, is fake news to the max. Um, uh, the, the number of times we've all been seeing how in psychology, so many even foundational experiments simply can't be reproduced. It's clearly a discipline which has very slack intellectual and ethical standards and is not really capable of producing, um, at least in some, in some, on some topics, anything of substance. And in general, the risk of empty, vain, stupid um, uh, expressions of prejudice translated into scientific studies is much higher when you have headline-grabbing news. So psychology meets social media uh, craze. That suggests almost certainly 
empty, worthless studies will follow. However, are American teens uh, having some trouble with social media? I don't doubt it. Um, is social media uh, making, making it easier for kids to be bullied or to feel isolated or to sort of feel bad about themselves as whether it's Instagram and TikTok influencers or their own friends sort of put up these Potemkin villages of how fabulous their life is versus how miserable your life is. Absolutely. And let's not forget, though, that kids today have gone through the pandemic, a time of unfortunately massive and utterly unnecessary uh, social isolation for teenagers, which, by the way, one may note that Surgeon Generals of the United States were advocating exactly the policies that put more stress on kids. So this is a generation that's already had a number of bad breaks that is being subjected definitely to social media, which is a new technology. We don't fully know what its impact long-term will be. Uh, so not exactly faux news, but the reason it's news is not because psychologists are telling us that there is news here. Well, that does it. Another round in the books. Let's move on to our next segment, The Learning Curve. Each episode, we draw on a historical mistake or blunder with relevant lessons for our own time. Walter, this week I want to talk about the 20th century story arc of Bank of America. So it was established in Los Angeles in the early 1920s and taken over by a guy called A.P. Giannini, who I think most Americans today have never heard of. But once you look him up, you kind of can't believe he's not as familiar to you as like John D. Rockefeller or Warren Buffett. And there's so much fascinating history here uh, involving the construction of Hollywood, the Golden Gate Bridge, Disneyland, but uh, this is the learning curve. So let's focus on Giannini's innovations as a banker for ordinary people in the first half of the 20th century, but then Bank of America's transformation into a money center bank doing all kinds of pathological third world lending in the 1970s and then the bank's near near collapse in the 1980s, which it only survived through a series of mergers. This is obviously an epic story that could take up a whole podcast by itself, but let's focus on telling the story, if if you will, on the rise and decline of A.P. Giannini's uh, Bank of America. Well, you know, the, the rise is a lot more interesting than the decline, in my view. Giannini was actually, he's actually the founder of what became the Bank of America. It started off as the Bank of Italy, because he was the son of illiterate um, Italian immigrants. And uh, used to, as a young teenager, was was instead of uh, wasting his time in school, was out there doing, was out there lugging sacks of groceries and boxes of fruit and so on among the Italian grocers. He sort of got to know people, um, began to observe that, you know, some of them were pretty solid businessmen and pretty trustworthy individuals, others not so much. And so based on his knowledge of character, he, he organized a small lending operation, banking to people who, you know, would repay, could and would repay. Uh, and this, um, there was an underbanked community. People were happy to, to have his assistance. Then he got his big break, oddly enough, with the uh, great earthquake, where um, when he saw the fires were beginning to burn in the city, 
he went down and uh, got the records and the gold and silver out of the vaults of the bank, put them in orange crates in the back of a cart, mule-driven cart, and just took them out of the fire zone. When it was safe to go back in, he brought all this stuff down and on the in the harbor in San Francisco on two barrels. He had rested a plank and was open for business. And what he immediately did was he lent money to all the ships in the harbor, which had not really been affected by the quake, to go up to further up north up the coast and buy lumber from uh, you know Oregon and Washington to bring down to begin the reconstruction. But all of his clients, because he had the records and the money, all of his clients came through this completely unscathed. He was ready to make loans for reconstruction or anything else they needed. And it brought him a kind of a loyalty. You know, this was the banker when the whole city burned to the ground. This was the banker who was there and who knew what to do. Well, he went on from this to to really become a dominant figure in California. He figured out how banks could lend money to film companies. You know, we, we don't really think about that as like, why would that be a problem? But banks lend against collateral. What's the collateral of a movie that hasn't been produced yet? What is it, you know, what does the bank take or, or how do you even think about that? And he sort of figured out, and it seems very simple in retrospect, that you can take the rushes, the film that they've shot can be your collateral against repayment of the loan. And it was, you know, this plus the weather in Southern California that was just a lot better than the weather in New Jersey that really brought the film industry out to California. So you can call him in many respects the father of Hollywood. But his biggest and most consequential, the most consequential thing he did, really transformational, was he popularized this bizarre thing called the 30-year self-amortizing loan. This sounds almost as dull as a headline about Chinese real estate. So we're really pushing all the hot buttons on this particular podcast. <laughs> um, he, um, uh, uh, the idea of a 30-year self-amortizing mortgage, which you know, if, if any of our listeners uh, own or are buying their own homes or apartments, the chances are this is this is what you've got because it's the easily the most popular product. The idea is that if you think about a a house, um, over 30 years, its value depreciates, at least in theory, you know, to nothing. And so um, that would mean that a landlord would want to charge enough rent so you get a profit off the apartment, but over 30 years, you get the cost of the home or the apartment back so that you can build something new. That's kind of the theory of it. And so a 30-year mortgage is basically a loan that is going to, the payment amount on that is not going to be that far in advance of the head of the payment on a, uh, of rent, depending on interest rates. And so it meant that if, that if you could rent a home, you could, chances were you could buy a home and do it with a reasonably small down payment. Now, this was a revolutionary concept. Before that, in, you know, most, most, home uh, loans were on a like, uh, they were called balloon mortgages, where you'd like borrow the money for five years, and then then you're supposed to pay the entire amount. But if your credit rating has changed, or if the 
uh, interest rates have changed, you may not be able to refinance. And things would happen like if there was a financial crisis, you might have a lot of people losing their homes, being turned out into the middle of a depression. It was just much harder to, for the average person to buy a home. Um, and so by converting that to this 30-year reasonable payment loan, you bring home ownership into the range of the middle class. Giannini popularized this thing, marketed it all over California. He also focused on small savers. Um, uh, employees of the Bank of America, as it soon became known, would go into like schools and they would have kids would get these little savings account passbooks. And if with as little as a dollar, a kid could open a savings account, learn how banking went. They could put their money in the bank, see what their balance was. And obviously also small depositors. And so, so it was a bank focused on the average person and the little guy. But in addition to this, you would also do this great business with the loans. You know, if you're going to if you're going to have all these suburban houses being built, the town has to borrow the money to build the roads and the power infrastructure, the water, the sanitation, all the stuff that you have to do to turn like an empty field into a housing development. It all needs financing. The Bank of, of America is there at every turn lending to the car companies. But then, you know, the car, auto dealerships, but then lending to the homeowners for the money to buy their cars on the installment plan, et cetera, et cetera. Municipal bonds, car loans, the whole thing. And along the way, he also uh, or, uh, leads the way in the financing of the Golden Gate Bridge. So a pretty iconic guy in California history. And more than any other single person, you could argue that A.P. Giannini made mid-century California, the golden state for the average middle-class American Californian. Well, I can't think of uh, any better way into our, our next segment, The Big Conversation. start by quoting from your recent tablet essay, Build Back Red California. The Grapes of Wrath remains a landmark of American literature, but if Steinbeck had returned to his characters 30 or 40 years later, he'd have had a very different story to write. Ma Joad might have ended up as the little old lady from Pasadena, leaving her garden of white gardenias to become the terror of Colorado Boulevard in her ruby red Dodge. Rose of Sharon would be a Phyllis Schlafly-loving Reagan activist, reunited with her husband, now owner of a small chain of franchise fast food outlets. Tom Joad, converted at one of Billy Graham's Southern California evangelistic crusades, would be pastoring a megachurch in the Orange County suburbs. All of them would be worried about the new waves of desperate, penniless immigrants coming over the Pacific Ocean and the Rio Grande. So, Walter, you see the transformation of the Okies and other Dust Bowl migrants into surfing California suburbanites, as one of the most consequential episodes in American social and economic history, and one that can actually be replicated today. Uh, so we started a little by talking about uh, APG and Nini's role in some of this, but tell us more broadly uh, what you mean. Well, you know, California had been a solid red state from the Civil War to 1932. But in the election of 1932, like a lot of the rest of the country with the Depression, 
California goes blue and votes for Franklin Roosevelt. In 1936, Roosevelt would hit 67% of the popular vote in California. Um, what's driving that? Well, the general depression, but specifically in California, you have this vast migration. We, we talk mostly about the Okies, the, the Oklahoma farmers who, the, you know, as, as the Dust Bowl spread in, the, in Oklahoma and as the agricultural price depression aspect of the Great Depression intensified, you just had all these people losing their farms, give, walking away from loans they couldn't pay, their, their homesteads being auctioned off. They get into the old jalopy or beat up truck, you know, and they, and they cross the United States um, and end up in California. Though the, Calif- the Californians at the time really didn't want them to come. The highway patrol would try to discourage people without any money from coming into California. There were tent cities all over the state, huge homeless encampments, desperate people willing to work for pennies a day, doing any kind of work. Obviously, a great moment for the state's commercial farmers because they were really, uh, you know, they could have their pick of, of workers and pay them almost nothing. But, and, and writers like Steinbeck and generally on the left, this, this migration was proof positive that American capitalism had definitively failed. The new generation was going to have lower living standards than its parents. It was impossible that these people would ever enjoy prosperity again. And again, it wasn't just from Oklahoma. It was from the whole, a whole huge cohort from the white South, but also black Southerners moving to Los Angeles and so on at this time. Well, but again, as you say, you you go back to California in the 1960s, 30 years later, 25 years later, and what do you see? You see the Beach Boys. You see fun, fun, fun till daddy takes the T-bird away. You see, you know, people grilling in their suburban backyards. What happened? Well, it's a mix. Part of it is AP Giannini, 30-year self-amortizing mortgage, the rise of this suburban California culture, uh, create generating enormous prosperity. Building all those homes creates a lot of jobs and jobs that half-educated poor Okies can do. Uh, beyond that, with as World War II starts, you have to have a whole huge aerospace uh, industry built in California and, and naval yards and so on because we're fighting a huge war in the Pacific. And it becomes vital to national security to have the capacity there to, to build the stuff that we need to win the war. So there's an immense boom in manufacturing. And all along, you've got the old oil and gas industries of California chugging along, creating blue-collar jobs. So blue-collar work creates mass prosperity. And then the kid, the children of these people, through the wonderful California public university system, many of them are able to move up into white collar jobs. And so these, these desperate Okies, the poster children for the American Communist Party of desperate victims of capitalism, are turning into some of the most satisfied customers capitalism has ever produced. And some of the most, let us say, some of the most dedicated consumers that capitalism has ever produced. And they are the basis, not of a socialist transformation in the United States, but of the new Republican Party, the Sun Belt Conservative Republican Party. Richard Nixon begins it, Ronald Reagan kind of carries it forward. And this, 
you know, and, and it was based on their own experience. Capitalism, the, the American way had worked for them. In a generation, it had taken them from abject poverty to a prosperity that was the envy of the entire world. So, okay, what does that tell us today? Gosh, California is teeming with desperate migrants, many of them fleeing a mix of economic devastation and, and ecological devastation, right? Um, what do they want? They want pretty much the same thing the Okies wanted. They wanted jobs and they wanted homes. But California has decided in its wisdom, and I talk in the essay about the turquoisee of California, that is the sort of elite mix of blue staters who want a highly regulated economy and you know, sort of suspicious of capitalism and consumerism among the poor though they're quite okay with consumerism among the rich. And then the sort of nimby greens who don't want anything built anywhere and think that at most we should be cramming everyone into cities, but really what we need of everything is less. Uh, and certainly no new power plants, no new water, no new water works or any of this kind of stuff. So the average the price of the average house in California these days is about $700,000. Newsflash, there aren't many Mexican-American immigrants who are in a position to buy $700,000 homes. But there's plenty of land in California. There could be plenty of electricity generation. It has, the state remains very rich in fossil fuels, but if you don't want to use fossil fuels, you, there's, a, there's a lot of room in the state that's not even close to nuclear, to earthquake fault lines that is, would be perfect for nuclear power. Uh, these days, desalinization technology is much better than it used to be, much more energy efficient. You've got desalinization plants in the Persian Gulf that are providing water for cities of several million people. Uh, there, there is no necessary shortage of land, water, or anything else to give the immigrants in California today exactly the kind of chance. And I could say on top of all of this, as we look at the geopolitical situation, our concerns about China, something tells me we are going to want a strong aerospace and defense industry on our West Coast again. And that's going to involve a lot of investments and a lot of jobs. So you put all of this together and everything is, is in readiness for another California miracle. The only thing that is lacking is a political party that is that understands the opportunity and is ready to go out there and make the magic happen. Well, as a, yeah, as a native and resident of California and, uh, and a proud one, I have to say, even in the present circumstances, it's like, you know, I, I guess if I was like a Tory living in Islington under Jeremy Corbyn or whatever, I wouldn't necessarily feel any less English. But one of the many things that drives you insane about the state is just the pathetic condition of the California GOP, even just as an opposition party. Um, you know, it just seems like w one of the biggest pieces of West Hanging pieces of, of fruit. One of the juiciest pieces of low-hanging fruit, is that? right of the large hanging fruit in American politics, one of the lowest, 
would be for the California GOP to, you know, as you said, become the party of land and home ownership, right? For millennials and Gen Z, definitely, maybe even especially for immigrants. It's a core tenant of the American dream that's become basically unattainable under the state's democratic supermajority. And it seems like such an obvious route to clawing back a bit of state and even national political power, but the Republicans here just, they can't dunk, they can't shoot free throws. Do, do you see any future for them in the state? Well, look, I think this is a case it's always been true that California matters to the whole country. And so, you know, we are at, there are some states where Republicans have actually been making real inroads among minorities and immigrants, especially on some of these economic issues. And so, I, you know, maybe some folks could fly in from Texas and Florida and start talking to Republicans in California and also, you know, I'm sure part of this is a question of funding, that when a, when a party is totally out of power and has no pros, realistic prospect of returning to power anytime soon, fundraising is not the easiest thing in the world for such a party to do. Um, but I think, it's, you know, it's going to be more than that. The, the, the new leaders of the Republican Party in California are likely to trace their ancestry either across the Pacific or down into Mexico or into, into, into Central America. Um, maybe you need a rebranding. In, in Minnesota, I think they don't call, I think they call it the Farmer Labor Party rather than the Democratic Party at some point. So maybe it is, you know, the Land and Home Party. I don't know what, to, what you know, maybe you do some rebranding. But, but honestly, um, you know, the United States of America needs for the current, for Gen Z and millennials and for immigrants to become homeowners and to get their feet on, you know, firmly on the rungs of the ladders of upward mobility and economic success. Home ownership has, has been and remains the primary, you know, instrument of middle-class enrichment in this country. And I would also say, that you know, sometimes people want to try to divide the world into suburbanites who would benefit from home ownership things, and then oh, these awful people in the cities just kind of let them stew. But but honestly, you know, let's let's look at apartment ownership. Um, let's we should be developing uh, all kinds of policies and programs that that help people, you know, help urbanites own their apartments. Um, in New York during the 1970s, when there was a huge depression in the city, a lot of landlords were walking away from buildings in part because of the absolutely insane rent control uh, laws that were on the books at the time. You would find um, people would take matters into their own hands and you know buildings that had been rental would go co-op or go condo with the people who lived there having a very low owner's purchase price. Uh, I lived in a in a co-op in in Jackson Heights, where when this the people who were there at the beginning bought their apartments for like fourteen thousand dollars, you know they're worth they're worth a million dollars in many cases now. So, you know, let's be thinking really seriously and creatively. How do we turn California into a state of property owners, of of apartment owners in the cities? And, and by, just by the way, people who worry about gentrification, 
if the people who live in a neighborhood own the apartments in that neighborhood, when gentrification comes, they'll have a choice. They can stay where they are and enjoy a neighborhood with more amenities, or they can sell their apartment at a huge profit and go live in the suburbs or something else. Uh, so a social problem and, a, and sometimes a disaster for people becomes a major life-enhancing opportunity simply because you've gone from being a renter to being an owner. Well, that does it for the big conversation, which takes us to our final question, the tip of the week. Last week, we got an excellent reading suggestion, Walter, but this week you're in Texas, known to some as God's country. So this week we want a travel tip for any listeners who have never been to Texas. Give us your single favorite site, restaurant experience, or just general uh, travel tip for anyone visiting the Lone Star State. Well, you know, I've actually, uh, I've been here doing some uh, teaching in uh, in forbidden courses at the uh, uh, Austin University of Texas uh, summer camp, kind of. And these, they, they've been holding them in actually an office development. And this is the only office development that I can think of that count, would count as a great tourist destination. I don't think you just walk in and take a look around. But if you can figure out how to get in and see it, Old Parkland in, in Dallas is, it's, it's just this amazing place. It's sort of Instead of building, you know, some kind of huge office glass and steel office tower like so many, it's been developed to sort of combine a a mix of sort of references to classical architecture, to old American federal architecture, the red brick English architecture. It's got statues. It's got art. It's... Um, it's not in kind of a geometric grid. It's really a beautiful kind of oasis in the city. And it gives you a sense of, you know, what maybe America could look like if more people were willing to invest some more creativity and get away from some of the sort of norms of neo-brutalist urban architecture. And, uh, and it's, it's actually quite a beautiful place to be. Well, there you have it. Thank you to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Tablets of Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.